0: Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.
1: Welcome to the Monday edition of the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Guy Adami. And also, on Mondays, Guy, it is EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She's the head market strategist at the aforementioned SoFi. Liz, welcome.
2: Hello. Happy Monday.
1: It's a stormy
0: Monday. It's rainy. Oh, there it is. Your Packers, tough loss to the oh, Falcons. By the way. The 2-0 Falcons, Dan.
1: Yeah, I got to give a shout-out to my main man, Dave Ragone. He is the offensive coordinator for those Falcons there. 2-0, and o guy. And let me tell you something. I was in New Jersey last night. I was on the beach at Asbury Park. They had a couple TVs set up. I was there for a Foo Fighters concert at See Here Now. And they had dual screens, as they say in the biz. They had one tent with the Jets game on and one tent on with the Giants. And I go and I look in the second quarter. The Giants are down 20 to nothing. Okay, 20 to nothing to the lowly Cardinals of Arizona and you guys pulled it out, honestly, it would have been I wasn't playing for them,
0: so I appreciate you saying you guys. I'm not one of those people that speak about my teams we i I love when the callers say we lost you didn't lose because you weren't effing playing all right fine
1: now oh and two giants would have been a devastation here and you're one in one pack liz that's fine guys let's get on it we We only
2: lost by one point jordan love finished the game i think like 14 for 17 or something 14 for 19 not a bad showing Mm. whether
0: you lose by (laughs) 41 or one elizabeth in the national football league it counts as a loss you don't get style points this is not Figure skating. No style right. points.
1: Matter <laughs> of fact. All right. We got a big show because this is Fed Week. And Liz is going to be doing a Palooza. She is going to be on CNBC on Wednesday. Uh, she's going to be on the Halftime Report with Scott Wapner. She's going to be on the Closing Bell with Scott Wapner. In between that is going to be Fed Chair Powell. They're also going to have Jeffrey Gunlock. And I always find what he has to say actually very Fascinating, but there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff to go over here, just getting everybody set for this week. But first, stick around. I had a great conversation with Mark Simmer, he is the managing partner and CIO at Clear Haven capital management. We talk about what's going on in the credit markets, private credit in particular, and he had a lot of great insights there. But guys, okay, let's talk about it. So on Wednesday, we have the Fed. There's a whole host of things that we want to hear from the Fed about dot .plot, how the Fed are thinking about the potential for a soft landing. We talked about this a little bit, I think, last week. Fed Chair Powell, guy, I think it was a week ago Friday, was doing all of these off the records with the financial media, with a whole bunch of investors. They're trying to paint the picture for a soft landing here. But here's the thing I just have a hard time thinking about is that we have crude oil above 90. It's 92-ish. One of them is trading at 95. You can tell me the difference between 92 and 95 with WTI and Brent here. But it's hard to imagine that we are going to have a soft landing with crude oil where it is. And then you think about inflation expectations coming down. It seems to be there's something's got to give here, Guy. Talk to me a little bit about the potential for the Fed to nail this narrative, especially when we hear Fed Chair Powell on Wednesday
0: afternoon. Yeah, I've, I've thought that's a pipe dream for a while. With each passing day, I think the likelihood in some people's mind becomes more and more likely that they'll be able to do this. But if you just look around and say to yourself, how in the world is this going to be possible? When you look again, to this morning as we're sitting here, 10 year yields back above 4.35%, levels that we last saw in October. Yields are extraordinarily sticky. And again, I would submit they're going higher for the wrong reasons. You're seeing it across the globe as well. You're seeing a breakdown. In Japan, Peter Bookvar wrote about that earlier today. We've done podcasts about that. I don't want to get too granular, too wonky here, but that has impact in the United States markets without question. And to a certain extent, I think you're seeing it in a bond market. And they say in the airline industry, any landing is a good landing. I get it. But with that said, this landing is going to be bumpy as hell. And you know the plane's still in the air without question but they're looking for a runway and I just don't think they're going to find one that's going to suit their needs.
1: All right, Liz, I just mentioned it's hard to imagine. I was at a Pearl Jam show the other night and they played the song It's Hard to Imagine and you just got to think about the lyrics here. Things were different then. It's all is different now. I tried to explain somehow things were different then. All is different now. Just think about this. Where crude was, last time it was trading at these levels above 90, it was last fall, last October. The S&P was what? Below 3,600 for a spell. It's 4,450 right now, we think about all of those inflationary inputs that companies were able to pass through and with the sort of pricing power that they had for a whole host of reasons here, I think it's a little different now. That's what I'm getting at here. And you've talked a lot about this. You're like, you've said we're at that point. We're at that 18-month mark, right, since the the rate increases started. And it really feels like we're going to have a bunch of this data start to smash into each other in a way that maybe stock market valuations are not discounting.
2: We're at the 18 month mark since the hiking cycle began. We are at the 15 month mark since the yield curve inverted decidedly and stayed inverted. And and you can't argue that point, right? It's been inverted for that much time. This is exactly the point when things usually show up. And I think some things have showed up, but the data so far has not conclusively shown that there's a ton of stress in the system. However, Yeah. You have to, number one, look at the bond market. Number two, think about it logically in the sense of oil prices are high again, gas prices are high. So there's some justification for certain types of companies to pass that through. Airline fare probably stays high. That's justified. Maybe used car prices. There's certain things that are obvious knock-on effects of high oil. However, things like consumer staples, consumer discretionary, goods prices that we know have come down, input costs that we know have come down, no longer can be justified to pass through to to the customer. Not only that, Now the customer knows that inflation is down. You keep raising prices and they're gonna just resist, which is something that I think we talked about last week where we have this big trade down that's happened with the consumer, and you've got a bunch of businesses that are seeing a consumer that they don't usually see coming through their doors or shopping on their website because of that simple fact. Consumers are no longer willing to put up with the price increases and the pass-throughs, and they're saying, you know what? Then I'll just shop somewhere else and I'll buy different stuff until this goes away.
1: So, Guy, it feels like a little bit of a perfect storm for U.S. multinationals here. You think about, Liz just mentioned the dollar, the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie is approaching 106. That's a level that really it hasn't been at. It's been a couple times over the last kind of year, but it was really a breakdown level last year when, again, when the S&P was very near its lows. So you have the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield also at levels that it hasn't been since last fall, right, that four and a quarter level. Carter's been charting that out for us on Market Call over the last few weeks. He, thinks lower you think higher higher rates higher dollar higher crude oil it's mm-hmm. what do you call that a which is what is it's, it's which something... is brew and yeah, we're yes. into
0: that season by the way i saw a lot of halloween decorations i don't know what people but listen never <laughs> i guess it's never too early to get into the I bought a spirit. christmas
2: tree last night just please FYI. tell me no you, you did not <laughs> i did, I that's, did.
0: Uh, christmas is in december by the way that's just set the expectations for people. Anyway, in terms of what's going on in that witch's brew, I completely agree with you, Dan. A higher dollar, I don't think it's a particularly good thing. We had Mike Cow, not Mike Co, on our podcast last week. And he spoke exactly about that, the wrecking ball nature of the dollar going higher. I don't think the market is fully pricing in. And again, it goes back to what I said about Japan. It also has a lot to do with what's going on in China and the weakness in their currencies. And then you layer on that the recession we're seeing across Europe, it doesn't paint a particularly good picture. Dollar higher, not a good thing for the stock market. Rates higher, as I mentioned. Listen, if rates were going higher because some magically our economy was robust and doing well, I'd say, you know what? Maybe you could justify the valuations that people are paying for stocks, but they're not going higher for those reasons. They're going higher because the market's demanding a higher yield to buy our debt, number two. And the last thing you mentioned is crude oil. Crude oil is on its horse. People are not talking about it. It's the supply-demand imbalances that we've talked about for the last couple of years, finally manifesting itself in the price. You throw in some geopolitical stuff out there and you have higher energy prices. Even if crude went nowhere for the remainder of this year and early next year, it doesn't matter. That's in place. And Elizabeth can speak to this. We saw the inflation data last month. Guess what? It's going to be worse the next time we see it. So we have said for a while that inflation probably troughed a couple months ago, and it would reaccelerate into the fall. We're starting to see that now.
2: There's a quick stat that I want to mention, and I don't know what it reads as right now. I'm guessing that it's still in the okay zone. But when you think about how oil prices affect the consumer, how it affects spending, there's a threshold that if you look over history, once gas prices or once energy in general becomes about 4 to 4.5% of what a consumer has to spend on it overall spending right you look at disposable income once it hits that four to four and a half percent mark usually there's stress that shows up in the market in the economy afterwards because that's not a sustainable level of spending for the consumer so that's something to watch when oil prices did spike a couple of years ago we got pretty close to that if not right in between that four and four and a half percent mark but then they came down quickly afterwards we still had a lot of stimulus in the system it was justified to pass through those prices right i don't think that we're in that kind of situation anymore and now that we're here 18 months into a tightening cycle where capital is restricted that spending is a lot more fragile.
1: Yeah, it's also a, a few things I think. The guy talks about the consumer confidence is really just an overlay of the S&P 500. And, and here we are, we're down a few percent from those recent highs, but lots of stocks, like lots of big stocks in the market, and and some of these big tech names are down more than 10% if you think about an Apple or you think about a Microsoft. I just saw a guy when Netflix, which is one of these companies that had this huge 200 plus percent rally off of its last 2022 lows. That's down 20%. AMD, it's been wrapped up in this AI bubble. It's down more than 20%. So some of the technicals of some of the sentiment leaders is they're coming undone a little bit at a time where all of those things that you just... mashed together on the economic front. And then I think I use this expression that people are not talking about this or people are not focused on this. Think of the potential perfect storm that we have in the next few weeks. Let's say this UAW strike goes longer than people expect. Let's say that our government is headed for a shutdown. Let's say that student loan repayments next month are something that maybe people couldn't put their finger on what that meant for the sort of pent up spending post COVID, right? At a time where we have hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans not being repaid by a certain part of, let's just say, the workforce that felt emboldened about a whole host of different things as it related to wages and, and, and job security. And that seems to be changing a little bit at a time where, say I, I don't know, like all those things together really feel like the stock market. I'm going to go back to the stock market with a VIX. You guys know where it is. It's below 15. Doesn't seem to be appreciating it as it relates to year over year, because year over year at this time investors were panicked and now they see absolutely no fear let's click these
0: off one by one so you mentioned the potential for a government shutdown as we're sitting here at september 18th couple weeks left i don't think the news media will start to talk about it you saw a little bit over the weekend it will start to ramp up steam you'll have the bipartisan two people come on to different shows and talk about their plan but the reality is i think the speaker's up against it here and there's a small faction that i think controls his destiny and I think this is going to get pushed out to 11th hour. We'll see how that shakes out. But you're right. The market is not taking that into consideration. In terms of some of the other things you said, this auto worker strike, stick around, people, because I don't think this is going to get rectified anytime soon. It's just my opinion. But they seem to be pretty well dug in the UAW, around 40% pay increases. I think they maybe got down to 36%. I think Ford countered with 20. There is still a huge chasm between the two. And, for, and listen, I'm not taking the side of either party. but you think about the last 10, 15 years for automakers. And these are the golden years for those companies, not for the stocks, but for the companies. And the workers have not, they have not basically kept up with the cost of living. And they're trying to get it back in one fell swoop. So I understand that they're pissed off. So I think that lasts long. I don't think the market's taking that in consideration. And all the geopolitical stuff, again, apparently there was some clandestine US-China meeting over the weekend. We sent somebody out to try to cool, simmer things down on that front. Obviously, this is UNGA, United Nations General Assembly Week, which is just a joy for people trying to traverse Manhattan. We'll see what comes out of that. But you throw all these things in the pot, stir it up, and none of them are particularly good, in my opinion.
2: Word of the day, clandestine. I say clandestine, but clandestine. Okay, no,
0: listen, that's fine. That's a Midwest thing, clandestine. I'm like Um, the British version of English, but back to you. Oh,
2: I see. You're so much more sophisticated than the rest of us do you like a
1: spot Liz, of tea? Liz, <laughs> Liz, let's talk about this. We just mentioned a bunch of risk assets that are moving mm-hmm. around like crazy. We had the 10-year at 435. was at 380 about a, two months ago, that sort of thing. We have crude, the move that it's made. A whole host of things are moving around. The U.S. dollar. The, the volatility in the equity market, again, we have an S&P that's down 3.5% from its highs in late July. When you think about all those things we just listed, and, and when you think about the Fed week, okay, so in the middle here, we have uh, on Wednesday, the Fed's going to come out. Do you think there's a potential for equity market volatility? Again, and, and I just Oh yeah! highlight the fact that a week and a half ago it seemed like the fed jay Powell in particular was setting the tone for market participants getting comfortable with this soft landing scenario i do think it's interesting and i'm not trying to get guy all worked up on, on a monday morning here but in the journal why a soft landing could prove elusive this is from the fed whisper that nick timoros just the, hold, from hold on, on a second I know, I know, why I
0: know. You, you know you should <laughs> oh, just oh no I know. That, I know. The Fed Whisperer. Is that self titled Fed What, that, what is it? He's no, about five foot know, four, right? The, the, the reason the he's a Whisperer is has because they don't these... see him coming. Like, he hides under the desk and listens to him.
1: No, I, what it means is. No, it's that's, it that that's what it means to me. That's what it means to me. He's kinda a little nebbish the,
0: oh, I'm the all right. Fed
1: Whisperer. <laughs> floating <laughs> the trial balloons. Who was the are, other Fed
0: Whisperer? The... the other guy, he was equal. You put those two guys together and maybe they could play. If you literally put them together, maybe they could play in the NFL. Because independently, they're like, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're doing curling or something. Maybe they're the guys that sweep the ice.
1: Correct. Anyway, sorry. I I did that. I did that thing. But the question I had for you is the potential for – volatility, and obviously downward volatility in the stock market, again, I'm not wishing it, but we've said this again and again, the stock market here doesn't make the Fed's job that much easier, if if you will. So I guess my question is, if I look at the the S&P 500, between now and Friday's close, it's pricing about a one and a quarter uh, percent move in either direction. Okay, So if you just wanted to buy an at-the-money call or an at-the-money put, let's say you wanted to place a bearish bet and buy that at-the-money put, you are risking less than 1% between now and Friday's close. That seems like a pretty good bet based on everything that we've just outlined. Now, the flip side of it is if you want to you know, make that bet to the upside that the Fed maybe comes out and they're really dovish and everything sounds great and they're going to nail the soft landing. And th- in that scenario, the S&P 500 should move up. It should go back towards those 4,800 all-time highs from the first week in January 2022. So my point is, I don't mean that this week, but there are cheap ways to express those views in the market. But the only thing not working across the whole, at least risk assets that I see from a volatility standpoint, where you're getting paid to define your risk and make a view, it'd be the stock market.
2: I think the setup here is threefold. First of all, I think all three of us can agree that generally speaking, valuations are a bit high given where we are in the economic cycle and given where we are in the tightening cycle. So the setup is that there is always an increased risk for volatility when the VIX is low and valuations are high. So that's just number one building block number two the fed is never going to say that they see a recession coming this is one of those months this is one of the four times per year where we get their summary of economic projections and we get their dot plot Jay powell is not going to come out and say okay so we've worked into our projections the idea that there's going to be a recession at some point in the next six to twelve months so that's not what we're going to hear from them but the second building block in the potential for volatility is when the market seems pretty sure of what we are going to hear from them because what if then even if it's just commentary that's different than what the market expects there's potential for volatility and the last thing that is always present for a fed meeting i say this every single time i will say it again the most dangerous time to trade is between 2 and two thirty pm eastern time we get the data at 2 he starts talking at two thirty, and inevitably the market moves quite a bit, maybe in in both directions and ends up where it began, but it ends up being very volatile, at least for that 30 to 45 minute period when his commentary is happening. And usually there is a question by said Fed whisperer from the audience. And that particular question tends to move it quite a bit too. So it's something that you can't hang your hat on. You can't give as a foregone conclusion, we do not know what he's going to say. And I think that this is exactly in the time where, and I I would have thought that it would have happened already, where we start to get dissension among the voting members. And it hasn't quite happened yet, but I think it will begin and that will increase the uncertainty and just increase the chance of volatility every single time we hear from them.
0: Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I, I was surprised you didn't get more of it at Jackson Hole. I thought that would be a perfect time to hear differing voices and to Liz's words, some dissension in the ranks. You didn't get it. Not that they spoke with a common voice, but I think you're going to start to get more of it as we get closer to year end. And it makes, listen, given what's going on, it makes sense because depending on what side of the aisle you're you're looking at this data, you can make a compelling case for rate cuts in the beginning of next year, which I don't see, or continued rate hikes this year, which I don't see either. And that's what we're coming down with. And I think that's why it's so confusing for people, Dan. And We get some interesting names this week. You got FedEx on Wednesday. Say what you want about FedEx. It is an important barometer of what's going on. I think the stock is trading about 250 or so. It's nowhere near the all-time high, which I think we made back in, I think, the spring of 2021 or something like that. But it's had a little bit of a decent run. It's been lower left, upper right. Listen, I think FedEx is really interesting here. Technically, if you look back, you can make a very compelling case that We're potentially putting in the other shoulder of this head and shoulders formation that started in January of 2018. So we'll see, but don't discount the importance there. And by the way, you mentioned NVIDIA, Dan, very quietly, that stock's probably down 15 16%, probably more if you take into consideration that 5.16 print that we saw in the aftermath of their earnings release trading around 4.25 or so. And nobody's really, obviously when it goes down, nobody talks about it, but it's, You mentioned AMD earlier trading either side of a hundred. Throw NVIDIA in that as well, Dan.
1: Yeah, no, I I think there's some technical damage that's happening in some of the market leaders. That's why I just wanted to bring that up a little bit. And it's not too different than late 2021. We spent a lot of time then talking about the deterioration in many of the sediment leaders at many parts of the market that had done really well in the back half of 2020 and early 2021, and they were rolling over. But the fact that the S&P and the NASDAQ were making new highs in Q4 of 2021 right into the first week of 2022, it was a Apparent to us that we were going to be in a bear market because many parts of the market, many parts of whether they were recent IPOs or SPACs or crypto and, and meme stocks, and the list goes on and on, they were cratering. And then we saw. Tesla and Meta and some of those things top out in late 2021 NVIDIA also so to me I think we could be in a very similar situation and, and the technicals are saying that guys one last thing before we get out of here I just thought this is a really interesting couple of headlines I saw in Bloomberg over the weekend one was ex-JP Morgan gold trader sentenced to six months in jail for spoofing okay so this was uh, a market maker at JP and I guess a handful of, of these traders pled guilty to this guy's going to jail for six months they were spoofing they were putting basically Fugazi bids and ass up on the market screens. This was between 2008 and 2010. And yeah. think of all the things that went on at, at major investment banks in the lead up to that period. And during that period and none of those guys, and they're all guys, Went to jail during the financial crisis, and you're sending some gold traders to jail for putting up fugazi bids and asks, which we know goes on in every market. Guys, speak to that.
0: I got to be careful here because I don't know who's listening, but I'll say this: you said fugazi bids and asks. So if you put a bid into the marketplace, somebody could hit that bid. If you put an offer into a marketplace, somebody could take that offer. So you say fugazi. If what I understand why you're saying it, but the reality is if you put a bid out, somebody can hit it. If you could put an offer out, somebody could take it. So were they trying to manipulate prices? I'm sure they absolutely were trying to. But with that said, other market participants could have taken advantage of their air quote Fugazi bids and or offers. And But I think the point you're making is more important. The fact that there were far more criminal activity seemingly going on in 08, 09 that nobody really, nobody was punished for and you have a couple guys bidding and offering you know gold market that nobody ever cares about and those guys are doing some time in rikers doesn't seem to make a lot yeah. of sense to me well-
1: yeah, and the other headline, Liz, is ex Wells Fargo executive avoids prison over account scandal. Now, remember the the fake account scandal, and they were doing. Listen, this is different. This is more SEC sort of stuff, like as it relates to the business of Wells Fargo. And, and again, they were in the penalty box for years. They still remain that way. But it's just interesting in a way how some of these folks have probably been scapegoated from these banks, if you think about it, and especially because of all the criticism of all the activity in the 2000s and lead up to the financial crisis. And nobody went to jail no no and i'm not saying that i I don't know whether it's just really interesting that all these years later that we're now having folks like basically could go to jail i don't know it seems odd to me
2: yeah it, it is a strange it's a strange situation it's an odd topic to suddenly be coming back up and it could just be that we're trying to make an example i don't know that it's the right example given everything else that had gone on but look I got to be careful here too, obviously. The other thing is when you think about what happens in crises, we talked about this earlier in the show, it's always different. Yeah, it is always different. And if we have a crisis this time, it'll be different in a. the catalyst that took us into it is different, right? I think crises happen for a a handful of reasons. There are certain outside forces that cause them. The 2008-2009 crisis was a crisis of too much risk in markets, too much risk-taking and a blind eye towards it, and then probably a lack of transparency. If we have something this time, it's probably not caused by the same catalyst. It's caused by tightening. It's caused by credit crunches. It's caused by credit deterioration, but hopefully not criminal activity. And I think coming out of the 2008-2009 crisis, there was quite a bit more potential and real criminal activity.
0: I've seen enough movies, you know, about prisons and stuff. So can you imagine like the cafeteria table with these guys because it's what I mean, think about what they talk about. What are you in for? Yeah, I got into a fight at a Ravens game with a bunch of guys and what are you in for? Yeah, extortion, blah blah. What are you in for? I was spoofing the gold market. You get beat up for stuff like that.
1: Yeah, there you go. Things are different then. All is different now. We tried to explain, people. We appreciate you being here with us on a Monday. Liz Young, Guy Adami. I'm Dan Nathan. Thank you, guys. Stick around for my conversation with Mark Simmer. He is the CIO at Clear Haven Capital Management.
0: Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.
1: Welcome back to On the Tape. I'm joined by Mark Simmer. He's the managing partner and CIO at Clearhaven Capital Management. Mark, welcome to the pod.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Clearhaven, the products that you are focused on and why our listener should pay attention to what you have to say right now because it seems like every morning when I'm pulling up my FactSet or my Bloomberg or CNBC there's a story about credit. There's a story about who's moving into the private credit markets and and I think it's one that I think we all have to pay attention to and and we're really excited to have you here and dig a bit deeper here.
3: Yeah, that's great. So so as as far as Clearhaven what we do, we're a credit fund based out of new york and we focus almost exclusively on working with specialty finance companies and asset-backed securities what are those markets specialty finance and aspect securities those are you're, you're talking about the markets that are the financial underpinning of the economy asset-backed securities large companies the big mortgage originators the the auto lenders consumer finance companies credit card companies that's just how they fund their balance sheet not counting residential mortgages that's a five trillion dollar financing space in the US. And that's a lot of balance sheet for people to use. Not every single company that offers credit as a bank, they use those markets to fund themselves. And then if you're smaller than that, you don't have access to the large asset-backed securities markets, then you're a smaller company. You deal with firms like ours as well on the, on private transactions. We'll provide. The balance sheet directly to those companies so they can go and build their auto lending business or their hvac leasing business or whatever it might be that's the the perspective that we bring to this and the reason it's, it's gotten more important lately we've all seen what's happened with inflation we've seen what's happened with rates and that's why people are starting to come back and starting to look at this market more seriously. And it's really important to have a perspective on what's happening in credit. Even if you're looking at equities, if you're able to go out into the market and earn a 7%, 8 9% yield on single A, double A, triple A credit, that's got to affect your investing decisions on the equity side as well, because you're trying to make a risk reward decision there. And and that's why we have a lot of people looking at this space now.
1: Let's go back. You started your career at Bank America nearly 20 years ago in the Structured Products Group. And so this is, I think, the mid-2000s. And everything you just mentioned there, it was just as important in in the lead up to the financial crisis. And you probably had a front row seat for for some of the things went down. When you think of some of the verticals that you just mentioned here, obviously, many of these companies went under, uh, many banks went under. Talk to us a little bit uh, about the start of your career and how it led you to start a firm focused on this and and then there's a whole host of things going on right now where firms like yours are really muscling out some major financial institutions in this space that when you started in the business you guys were the only game in town for the most part
3: so as far as just how my career arc took me to this place yeah started off 2006 out of school b of a structured products i got some advice that synthetic cdo's were this place fastest growing desk on wall street i took that advice coming out of school and joined that desk which which gave me, you know, yeah, it was really a front row seat to a couple of things. So one is the complexity that can sometimes creep up on you when you're trying to just create financial products, and the dangers that you can experience in complexity. And then the second was just a really a, a boot camp in how to create and structure cash flows. And. And so I only spent a couple of years on that desk, 2006, 2007, 2008. And then I went to Macquarie where I focused on trading structured products. And in 2008, trading structured products, that was all the same stuff we're talking about now. But we're in the middle of the crisis. And for a period of time, it really wasn't clear how financial markets were going to continue to exist. And so it was a very interesting time to be investing in and learning about how all of the structured products, asset-backed securities markets work. I was at Macquarie and we were building out their in us based credit markets business. And so we had this really great opportunity to start off in asset backed securities, and then we moved into private transactions. And we did that over the course of 2012, 13, 14, and then starting in 14, I was managing those desks and building out those businesses. The, The act of building out the private credit businesses there really taught me about a lot of the weak points in how the current market serves early to mid stage or small to medium sized businesses in that space. And, and it can somewhat extends to the larger businesses too, but large businesses, they're just, it's just every transaction is so big, but the smaller businesses were really, it was really inefficient how they were acquiring the balance sheet to be able to go and build a, an auto finance business in the Southeast, whatever it might be. And so that's really what drove me ultimately to work on building these businesses in, with Clearhaven. We felt we could do them much more efficiently and just be a better counterparty to these businesses And a bank can be for good reason. A bank is set up for to do specific things, and this was not one of them.
1: You started Clearhaven with the idea that you could, again, like you just said, better service some of these smaller companies. Give us an example of, of kind of what you can do um, with your company size, just, I guess, the nimbleness of it, your access to financing and your ability to be competitive with larger institutions. And and what does it look like from an investment standpoint? For banks, they go and they do these deals, they make fees. It, it's a different focus for you guys here. You're, I, I think you're getting more in bed with the, the, the client that you are essentially funding too.
3: Yeah. How are we competing with the larger players? I, I think it's really just, it's really via approach and you know how we set ourselves up as a counterparty and how we've built the internal processes of what we do. This is actually something that ev- almost every company I've ever seen gets blindsided by how difficult and, and expensive and lengthy the process is to secure balance sheet to go and build your business. All right? I think everyone's run into that who's tried to go get a loan from a bank or it's the same with hedge funds credit funds. It's it, a lot of times you're entering into a six to twelve month process. That when you're trying to borrow somewhere up to, if you're trying to borrow five million or twenty million or a hundred million, it, it a lot of times it ends up costing about the same and taking about the same amount of time. And the cost could be half a million dollars, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, a million plus. And if you're a medium-sized business, that's a giant number, especially if you're just looking for 10, five or ten million dollars to spend a million dollars putting it in place. And six to twelve months of your of your life it's very very intensive so what we've done is we've gone back to basics on that and we've done we've spent so long we're closing in on 20 years now in this industry so we've standardized everything just through our experience dealing with all these companies so many times everything's standardized so we can that allows us to go out and just close a lot more quickly a lot more cheaply right not even in the same ballpark right 50 grand to close a transaction four weeks and the structures and we try and minimize mistakes the reason things take a long time is You're dealing with someone's kind of dealing with your asset class for the first time. They make mistakes in structuring it. They have to go back and redo. And we try and minimize that by just doing everything a lot of times. And so that's what we're trying to bring to the space. A little bit more of a commoditized product that people know they can go out and get. No one started building a specialty finance company because they thought they were great at capital markets. That wasn't their passion in this. That's our passion. So we try and solve that as efficiently as we can. So if you're not focused on the fees, which banks
1: are, talk to me a little bit about it as an asset class. Obviously you raise capital from investors and you're looking to deploy that capital and get a return on that, because I think that's one of the biggest
3: differentials also. This kind of comes back to where rates are right now. Everything in financial markets is floating rate. Whether you have a fixed rate loan or, or not, if you come back to market to borrow, you're effectively floating. People are gonna look at the current rate environment. Usually what people benchmark off of, I don't know if maybe not everyone's familiar with it, but it's SOFR. It's a replacement for LIBOR. And right now it's a little over 5%. And so everything we price is basically above that. And so right now, generally we're able to price transactions somewhere between SOFR plus 7% and SOFR plus 12%, which kind of puts the baseline unlevered um, return on financing in this space between 12 and twelve and 18 And that's pretty down the fairway. We don't, I think that most credit funds would would say that's approximately where they're pricing. And that's what's brought a lot of people back to this. Is from the investor standpoint, is that the returns are really attractive. You're putting yourself in a senior secured position on a high cash flow underlying, which is just a very good risk position to be in. And so, good risk position, 12 to 18 unlevered. And then we've been in this market long enough that we can we can go and get bank financing ourselves. How do you think
1: about diversification across your portfolio, and and how do you manage risk in something that that tends to be the rate environment has been very volatile? Is mm-hmm. that something that is also on your radar? as it's become harder for companies, especially smaller companies, to get access to capital. And now they're paying much higher interest rates. How do you think about the risk environment well, right now?
3: Yeah, so I, I would say maybe bringing it back to what people are experiencing every day. You've seen the rates on auto loans and mortgages and consumer loans. People on people with credit card debt are seeing those rates. Those are floating rate instruments in many cases. right? They're, they're seeing their rates increase. And at the same time, people are seeing a lot of their day-to-day expenses increase. This is a very unique situation in which rates are increasing and we had high inflation. We haven't had that combo in a long time. It's a double hit to people's balance sheets. In terms of what we're seeing from a risk standpoint, we're seeing people's incomes get squeezed and you're seeing that come through on the underlying and underlying performance, right? You'll see in headlines auto loan default rates or credit card default rates and things like that are hitting peaks despite low unemployment. And that's something that generally we've got to deal with our counterparties. At the same time, the consumers struggling. The specialty finance companies are struggling. They don't want to trust me, specialty finance companies generally do not want to charge high rates. They want to charge the lowest rate possible because they want to grab market share. They want to originate. They want to grow. Right. So they're generally trying to charge the lowest possible rate that they can out to consumers. And that's a tough balancing act when they're borrowing rates. Just out in the world, the, the U S government's borrowing at five and a half percent. These companies are borrowing at eight, nine, 10, maybe more. And so now they've got to balance higher defaults. People are struggling to pay back their loans with higher funding costs. And that's what ultimately causes them to have to tighten credit. They have to raise rates. They've got to reduce the volumes of loans that they're underwriting. And everyone's experiencing that now. It's just harder to get credit. As far as like how we deal with that risk and then how we construct our book, we're a macro shop at, at, at our core. We're dealing with companies that are originating hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of loans. And what that means is that we're exposed to these macro factors. We're not exposed to one auto loan defaulting. We're exposed to, okay, what percentage of loans are defaulting? And did we structure our financing facility properly to to accommodate what might be 5% default rate or 10% default rate, or maybe if the, if it gets really bad, 15 or 20, that's how we look at risk. We work with a broad array of consumer and small business finance companies. We might have 20 companies, 30 companies, 40 companies in Fund 3. Um, I think we have closing in on 20 in Fund 2. We, we try and deal with a lot of companies with diverse portfolios of assets, and that's the best risk mitigant for us. Yep.
1: So you just mentioned that you're a macro shop at heart, and you also mentioned that the Fed have raised Fed funds 5.5% over over the last 18 months, they might do another 25. We're looking at the CME Fed watch tracker at the November meeting. It doesn't look like a, a high likelihood at all that they make any moves at next week's meeting here. But I'm just curious how you think about inflation and the Fed's attempt to rein it in and what happened from a macro standpoint. Or when we go back and we think about SVB and a handful of other regional banks that went under in March and April, was that something that you saw? Was that on your bingo card heading into 2023? People use these terms like the Fed will go until something breaks. Something did break. And when I look at the ability for like firms like yours to come in and fill the void that was created by the failure of those banks, it seems to be a a unique opportunity for a whole host of players. But I wonder, going back to your experience where you started in the business on that synthetic CDO desk, is are we moving towards something that we don't understand just yet? So as that void is filled, as these private companies are, are, are providing this sort of financing What's the regulatory environment look like, and is it something that you and some of your peers are, are proceeding fairly cautiously
3: around? Did we see the bank crisis happening the way that it the way that it did happen? I don't think we pinpointed those institutions. I, I think we knew there was stress well in advance of that. That was very clear in our space because we're there. We're dealing with the banks every single, every single day. We're in conversations with a bank on one thing or another, and you get a sense for how aggressive they're being in building their balance sheets. So through, through the back half of 2020, 2021, 2022, banks were very aggressive in, in putting out money and building their balance sheets. Towards the end of 2022, it was very clear there was a pullback. There were a lot of banks that just, it was, it was obvious they hadn't handled their rate risk properly. And the blind spot for us there was we didn't realize how badly they'd handled it on their treasury books. We weren't looking at their treasury books. We were looking at the transactions we knew they were in that were long dated fixed rate transactions where you know, you're just gonna, you're just gonna lose money on a long-term and if you originated mortgages, you lost money, right? You have a bunch of 3% mortgages and your borrowing costs are higher than that now. So even as a bank that we, we could feel the pullback there. And then it was clear they'd also like many people had tried to take Tried to earn a little bit of extra sp- spread by pushing out the yield curve, and that that hurt a lot of institutions. And so then, with SVB going and a waterfall effect, I do think maybe that caught the the Fed a little bit. They didn't expect to have a large bank failure, most likely, but it ultimately it accomplished the same goal, which was a pullback in credit. And we're still like many banks are still working through this. Banks are licking their wounds. Most of the back end of 2022, and of course all of 2023, banks have been trying to figure out how much money they have. That's been the fundamental, their fundamental question because they made a bunch of loans and and when rates were low and you model, you think like uh, your your prepayments, people are paying off their loans about 20, 25% a year. They just prepay people buy their house, sell their house, move, whatever. Same thing with auto loans. They trade in their cars. All this stuff was, you know, you just expect a certain amount of the money to come back and you have to put it back out again. When rates went up, all that stopped. So all of a sudden, all the loans they made, that money's not coming back. At the same time, people decided to take all their money out of the bank, (laughs) so they don't have money coming back. Meanwhile, deposits are flying out of the bank and the bank is now in a position, this is what causes those failures, they're like, wait a second, we totally misgauged how much capital we needed to have to be able to satisfy these deposit outflows. And so a lot of banks had to, not everyone was hit as suddenly as SVP was, but they all are dealing with the same issues, have been dealing with the same issues. And so that's caused a big pullback in bank credit to commercial real estate, to institutions like us, just that kind of low cost of capital that, that kind of underpins the, the broader economy, that ability to get financing, it kind of went away and has and been very difficult. So that flows through and increases your auto lender's financing costs.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned something I think is really interesting. We've talked a lot about it on the pod over the last few months and and really since these failures. You mentioned that you you realize that a lot of these regionals were were having a difficult time managing that duration risk as rates were going up precipitously. And that became very evident once there was a run on the bank's assets. When I think about it now, okay, and I look at the major money center banks, I look at a a Citibank or I look at a Bank of America, Citibank is down 45% from its 2021 highs. You think about it, it's very near its multi-year lows right now. And when I look at just the BKX, which is the, the KBW Bank Index, it's down 19% of the year versus an S&P that's up 17% of the year. It's down 45% from its highs just a couple years ago. The markets, at least equity investors in these banks, are saying that there's problems here. And I don't mean problems to the tune of 08, 09. I don't mean to the tune of, let's say, an SVB going under. But there has been competition for their deposits As rates have continued to go higher, could we find ourselves in a similar situation at some point over the next three to six months. If inflation, and we just had the CPI print that ticked up a little bit, if the Fed remains higher for longer, all of these major money center banks might have been managing some of their mark-to-market situations you know, not too dissimilarly. And so I just wonder, was what happened in March or April just a precursor for what we might see in some of the large money center banks? Because at least the way equity investors are treating them right now, they're preparing for something else to happen, another shoe to drop.
3: I I think there's just a lot of factors. So banks are very complex, especially the big money center banks, right? A a regional bank is usually a pretty simple, like more simple institution. So the big money center banks, it it would be hard to pinpoint that to their treasury portfolio. Typically, they're not going to mess up their rate risk horribly. The large institutions, JP Morgan, B of A, they've got their handle. They've got very large, sophisticated risk management groups there. So while they definitely have duration mismatches, and whenever you have a mortgage portfolio, that's a negatively convex portfolio, meaning that as rates go up, you lose money at an increasing rate and you make money at a decreasing rate. And because you can lose money at an increasing rate as rates are going up, it's just a difficult position to hedge, right? Because your exposure is constantly changing. And, and frankly, it's increasing as you lose more money. What you're looking at there, I think is a couple of things. One, I think it's just generally people are still trying to figure out how to manage their balance sheets with, with regards to the new rate and prepayment environments. But we're seeing a very strange consumer credit environment. I'm no expert on bank stocks, right? I'm going to bring it back to what we're seeing and then extrapolate that to a bit to what the bank balance sheets are likely experiencing. But people are drawing down their savings. And there was a lot of excess savings through 2020, 2021 uh, on the back of COVID. But people are drawing down their savings. The combination of increased rates and increased in, and, and high inflation, you're just you're seeing 2008 like, crisis level default rates in consumer with the lowest unemployment we've seen in years, <laughs> you know, like, it, like ever. Usually you're going to see increased defaults with increased unemployment. You're seeing increased defaults and there hasn't even been a move in, in unemployment. So I think that the, the risk that I think everyone here is, at least in our industries that look at this kind of stuff is trying to understand the consumer is not particularly healthy right now. Yeah, they had excess savings and that's propping things up, but the consumer is not healthy. And if we do go into a recession and whether inflation comes down or not, that probably helps bring inflation down. But if we do go into a recession, like a job recession, where people are losing their jobs, you're seeing unemployment tick up. We hit nine or 10 in 2008, we're at three. If you see unemployment tick three, four, five, six, what does that mean? Because people have jobs and they're still defaulting. That's going to get at the core of these banks balance sheets, too. They're big credit card portfolios. They all have big credit auto. They're just big institutions. So Mark, you've talked
1: a lot about the consumer. I think it's interesting earlier in the week, the CEO of Walmart, I think was at an industry conference and talking about how the consumer is, at least from their vantage point, And it made it sound like they're holding up pretty well. And I guess I just make one point about that is that Walmart has seen the benefit of a trade down of a consumer over the course of the last, let's call it 18 months, Have rates have gone higher for a lot of the reasons that you've mentioned that are putting stress on the consumer, drawing down savings and the like here. My question for you is as you think about it from an investment standpoint across the finance space, we've had this recession pushed out that everybody, at least the equity markets late last year at this time, was pricing in a very high likelihood of happening. We haven't had. We could be starting one for all we know. We won't know for two quarters. How do you guys think about the potential for a recession across your portfolios and across the verticals that you're
3: most focused on in specialty finance? And what does that mean for your strategy? On the private credit side, we're long-term investors. We grew up in the shadow of the financial crisis. We grew up experienced 06, 07, 08. But then we built businesses in 09 through now. And when you're building businesses in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13. So the housing market after the crisis didn't bottom until really 2012, right? You are just, you feel like you're still living in it and you're still looking back on it and you, and so you just, your entire approach to the world is that could happen. Let's make sure if that happens, we're not taking that risk. So that's how we manage our book today. Every single transaction, we've got to look at it and say, a recession is always around the corner you never know. You can't say for sure it's not going to happen. And if you're entering into a three or four year transaction, no one's looking that far out. No one can predict the future that far out right now. So every single transaction needs to be robust to a recession happening right in the middle of it and you've got to be okay with that and it's got to be structured to withstand that. So when we look forward, yeah, we see a lot of weakness in consumer, right? That's going to hit retail probably later than it hits financial services, right? You're seeing credit card debt continue to increase. I saw a chart the other day of excess savings and it spikes up in 2021 and it's drying down and they projected around April or May of next year, it's going to cross the trend line and people are going to draw down excess savings. So you're going to feel healthy in retail while people are ramping up debt and drawing down on savings. But from our standpoint, we don't know what'll happen. We don't know if it'll be a severe recession, no recession, but we just don't want to take the exposure where we're betting a position on it. So right now what we're doing, the way we're reacting to it. We're just structuring our positions more and more conservatively because we see the deterioration in the underlying performance. Okay, let's back it up a little bit just in case losses double again.
1: There seems to be a fascination right now in in the private credit markets, but you have tremendous experience in in the public markets. And so in this rate environment, how how are you guys thinking about that right
3: now? Where we started to see opportunity was really back in 20, 2022, when rates first started going up, we have institutional investors. We have a lot of family offices, high net worth that invest with us. Everyone has money that they keep on the sidelines and, and they keep it in short duration, fixed income, bonds, things like that. And when rates started going up, I think people started to realize that we'd had 15 years of zero rates almost. And uh, none of those strategies were really meant for a, a rising rate environment. They weren't really prepared for it. And so we saw a lot of our investors take drawdowns of five, six, nine, ten 10 points as rates started to increase increase. increase on bonds That was that's you have a fixed rate instrument and it's going to go down in price as the risk-free interest rate that you can earn goes up the current rate environment it's presented a really interesting kind of unique opportunity where you're right now you have a treasury curve that's five and a half percent on the front end and downward sloping What that means is you get paid money to not take risk on a yield curve like that. The shorter you go, the less interest rate risk you take, the more you're going to get paid in yield. We found that there just weren't really a lot of well-designed investment to take advantage of that downward sloping yield curve. You have distress in the specialty finance sector that's causing spreads and asset-backed securities to sit at wider levels, and you have this downward sloping yield curve. And so that's just a great place right now if you can find it, if you're keeping money on the sidelines, being able to invest in that short end of the curve to keep your sidelines money earning. It's a really great opportunity right now in, in this particular market. That
1: was Mark Simmer. He's the managing partner and CIO at Clearhaven Capital Management. You can find more about his firm at clearhavencm.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll come back.
3: Yep. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors,
0: CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.